Thank you, Joe. Amen. Uh, hey, how's everybody doing? Great. All right, I got to tell you something. Uh, this could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. However, my wife woke up early this morning. She made coffee. Around 7.45, I had a cup. That usually doesn't happen. Then, 9.45 comes around. I'm driving over here. I grab a cold can of yerba mate out of my fridge. I down it. All right. I get here. Everyone else seems a little groggy. Not me. All right. <laughs> I'm on absolute level 11, and I'm ready to go. So we're going to jump in, and if you take notes, I'm letting you know, bruh, write fast, okay, because... Your boy's on it today, all right? And, uh, and I'm ready to go, so I might be talking quickly. Uh, there is a podcast that you can listen back to this on. I consult you to refer to it, okay? So this is, I'm also going to move this quick because this is going to kill me since I really like to go to this, uh, this screen. That will be sufficient. Uh, and so, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to continue our time in worship by jumping into the scriptures. And we're going to do that by continuing our sermon series called A Weary World Rejoices. Uh, and so, man, this is really focused on Advent, but it's also really focused on, on explaining and exploring the meta-narrative of scripture. Again, everybody say meta-narrative. Oh, it sounds just angelic, all of you. Meta-narrative. Now, now, anybody want to tell me from the past couple of weeks' review, what is a meta-narrative? Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Not Mark. Not Mark. And you know what? You know what? Not Megan. All right. Not, not an Odin. Let's go there. All right. No. All right. Anybody else? All right, go ahead, go ahead. So let's, let's do it. Okay, great, great, great. One of the, one of the great... Words to use for this is, is overarching story, right? Overarching. And so if we're going to put a very uh, specific, right, like a, a Bible dictionary type of, of definition to it, it's the idea that there is an overarching, all-embracing story of humankind into which all the more particular narratives, e.g. salvation, history, X, Y, and Z, uh, fit into. And so it is the big story, right, overarching, to which all the little stories fit into, and are made sense out of. So this is what we're, what we're getting at here through this, this story of a weary world because the story that we're largely in is the story of a weary world, right? We feel it. We feel it when, when things are disappointing, when things are frustrating, when things are discouraging. We feel it when, when the weight of sin and brokenness around us, when the weight of sin and brokenness inside of us starts to press down and we feel that sense of being overcome. We feel that sense of despair. We feel that sense of discouragement. That's exactly what we start to feel. And when we start to look at the bigger story, we see that the world has largely been in this position that nothing has changed. As the author of Ecclesiastes would put it, there's nothing new under the sun. And so the problems and the discouragements and, and the disappointments that we experience, likewise, are the same ones that they experienced 100 years ago and 1,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago, except for now, instead of a stone tablet, we're expressing those through a, a tablet from Apple. So instead of a stone tablet, dang, I should have said instead of a stone tablet, an Apple tablet, just rhetorical faux pas. That would have been so good. But anyway, uh, so that, that's what we're seeing in the meta narrative. However, however, God also has a meta-narrative going. And it's to see the weary world and to respond by loving, serving, and pressing in to be with it, to love it, to redeem it. And so that meta-narrative is actually for God, not just the brokenness and the hardship in the world, but his actions to love and restore and redeem that broken world, redeem that weary world. And that's where the promise of the Messiah comes in, right? This idea that we, we are, are broken, we, we are in the darkness here, but at the same time, God has seen fit to bring a Messiah that's going to redeem and to shape and to love and to restore the world, this weary world. The first week we went through what we called the promise of the Messiah, which is that at the very beginning of the story, when things seem so beautiful, then go awry due to human sinfulness, there's a promise of one that's going to come. It's in Genesis 3, what? All right, the Nodines beat me to it. All right, so Megan was right there, though. You were right there. All right, so Genesis 3.15, where even in the midst of brokenness, right, there's a promise that one is coming who's going to overcome this darkness, who's going to restore this, this beautiful creation, and who's going to, to really, like, defeat sin and death. That's the promise of the Messiah. Then last week, we explored this idea of, of the purpose, the redemptive purpose of the Messiah. What does that Messiah do? 
How does he, how does he intervene like this? And, and we saw in Genesis 3 when, when after years of silence, now God meets Moses in the wilderness, right? He, he appears to Moses in a burning bush. A lot of you guys have kind of heard this story. And he says, I've heard the cries of my people. In fact, I know them. And, and that word is, uh, is a, a Hebrew word that can almost communicate this idea of I, I feel your pain. So in response, I'm going to come down. I'm going to come down. And through Moses, God is going to work in bringing redemption. And so we know from that that, that really, we're not quite yet, we're, we're sticking here, sorry, Lord. Um, from there, that, that God is this Messiah figure. He's going to be the one that comes in and intervenes. He's going to be the one that starts to do this restoration. And so finally today, we're getting toward this idea of the announcement of the Messiah. Well, we've been waiting for him, and, and finally comes this announcement period. Uh, and so we're going to jump into this. We've seen the promise. We've seen the purpose of the Messiah. Now we're going to see how during this time of Christmas, we start to, we start to kind of get down with the announcement that there's one coming. Yeah, and, and he's here. So we're going to explore a bit of the words of John the Baptist, okay? Everybody say John the Baptist. All right. Slightly less enthusiastic on that one. We'll let that go. Okay, so, uh, and then from there, we're going to explore some of his words, and, and then we're going to take a look at how Jesus' response to some of John the Baptist actually does a beautiful job of unveiling a lot of, of what God's mission is and, and who God is and, and how you really see his character through his work, specifically in the person of Jesus. Um, and so, Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, we're going to work through two ideas when we think about the announcements of the Messiah. Those are those two uh, from before, Laura. We're going to think about our hopes, and then we're going to think about God's response to our hopes. Okay, we're going to think about our hopes, then we're going to think about God's response to our hopes. And so uh, what I want to do first is I want to read the words of, of John the Baptist uh, as he's getting his ministry going. If you don't know who John the Baptist is, he's actually one of Jesus' cousins, like kind of a distant cousin. And he's given this task to be a, a, a certain type of prophet that, that comes before Jesus, that is promised to come before Jesus, uh, and, and that's kind of where we're going to pick up the story. And so uh, we're going to start in John 1.23, and we're going to read from there, uh, and then we'll pick this up when we think about our hopes uh, from, from this verse in John 1.23. And so let's go to John 1.23 um, and, and go here. It says, then John's disciples... Uh, Okay, there we go, there we go. John 1, He said, I am, this is John speaking, a vo uh, the, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah, uh, the prophet, said. I think, that's the way it, I think that's the way it ends, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, ooh, your boy out here memorizing it. Okay, so, uh, so what do we know about John? What we know about John is that he appears on the scene, and there's a lot, of, a lot of stories about John, and people don't know how to respond to him, because he takes several oaths that result in him being what, what some would describe as a little creepy. Uh, he does not cut his hair, so he looks a little raggedy. He, he does not partake in any sort of drink. He lives out in the wilderness, and he kind of is like, like kind of dresses himself in rather barbaric clothing, and it says that he eats like locusts out in the wilderness. And so when everyone comes and looks at John, they're like, bro, this dude is wild. But then they go and they hear this message of repentance that John is bringing. And he's saying, I want you to come and I want you to repent of your sins. I want you to turn away from this life. And I want you to start focusing on God. And so a lot of people start to question, well, could this be the Messiah? And so John 1 actually takes a beautiful care of this. And, and it displays this conversation between Pharisees and John where they say, are you like the Messiah? And he's like, no, 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 no. And they're like, so are you a prophet? And he's like, eh, not really. So they're like, so who are you? And then he says, I'm the one in the wilderness that's crying out, make, way the, make straight the way of the Lord. And so what does this mean? It means that for John, he's looking at the people that are in front of him, and what he's doing is not pointing to himself. His work doesn't point to himself. When, when given the, the option to declare whether he's some type of prophet, like the prophets of old who were held in high esteem, or, or whether he's the Messiah, even greater than that, John rejects those titles and says, no, 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 that's not me. But I am doing something. But I'm preparing. I'm preparing something. He, he starts to already point towards someone greater than him. And he starts saying, I'm, I'm out here trying to prepare the way for the Lord who's coming after me. And then you hear John start to use language like there's one coming after me whose who's sandals I'm not, worthy, I'm not worthy to tie. And so, so he's doing a lot of this, but, but there's a lot of passion behind it. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of fervor behind it. There's a lot of heart behind it. 
Some of you are looking at a story like this and you try to relate it to your own life and you try to say, well, yeah, we can be passionate about God and try to prepare and evangelize and invite people into knowing Jesus and, and all that type of stuff. And that's good. I don't, I don't want to stop you from doing that, but, but it's an injustice to what's really happening for Paul because here's the thing. We left off this story at Exodus 3 last week and now we're in John 1. That's a lot of Bible to cover. That's a lot of Bible. Rest assured, I have a nerdy chart for us to work through it. But the point is, is that we have to catch up in this story in order to know what's coming from, from John and how passionate and, and the things that are behind it. We have to know exactly how the, the last several hundred years have gone for his people to know exactly what he's bringing to the table and how passionate he is about what he's saying. Can you put up that chart, Laura? It's, it's a bunch of lines across the screen. Uh, nope. There's one before that. I think. I hope. Yeah. Um, so we're going to look at a biblical timeline real quick to just catch up on this story. We left off at Exodus 3 uh, where we saw slavery uh, and, and really like the, the Israelites in Egypt and how God was going to bring them out of that. And so you all know that story, right? Moses and 10 plagues and all this. And then all of a sudden they go out into the wilderness and they, they wander around for a period of time, 40 years or so. It's it was, I think, it, you know, like the, the, the stats say it's like supposed to be like a four or five day trip or something like that. It took them like 40 years. I don't know how that works. But um, what we know is that from there, they go into the promised land. And so they stay several, several uh, decades in this promised land. This is, and these are the corresponding biblical books that work with this. And so you think about the fact that there's in the promised land books like Joshua where they're coming in and then First and Second Samuel to tell the story of how they, they received their kings. And then First and Second Kings tells the story of the kings past Solomon and, and including Solomon. And then you have at the end of this time, uh, prophets like Isaiah, they're starting to come in and say, hey, things are not going well. We're starting to fall away from the Lord. And then we go into a period of exile where we're in disciplinary response, not, not in, in wrath, like wrath. Like wrathful response, but in a disciplinary loving response, God exiles uh, the people of God, Israelites, out of Israel, and they're sent to, to Babylon, uh, where they'll live. And then you have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. That's the, the portions of the Bible that cover this time. And, and getting out of here now, we, we have this portion that we covered this year, just a few weeks ago, in Ezra and Nehemiah, where, where the people are sent out of Babylon and back home. And, and as they arrive back home, they are rebuilding a temple, and, and things feel like they're going really well, except for they can still feel the pressure of oppression from a ruling kingdom. And so maybe it's Babylon, but the thing is from here, we, we're invited into a lot of really important history, right? You have Ezra and Nehemiah where they're coming back, but then you have a period like First and Second Maccabees, which is not in our Bible, uh, but it, it is a, a good historic reference of a war of the, the revolutions that these people called Maccabeans fought against Greeks, who were the next people that were, that were overseeing uh, the Israelites. And then from there, it went to the Romans. And now when we get all the way from here, the next several uh, hundred years from, from this time of return to the New Testament, where we're getting to right now, are filled with a time where the people of God are back in the promised land, but they feel the weight of a foreign rule over them all the time. They're never separated from this idea that, yes, I'm here, but it's not mine yet. I'm here, but it's not mine I'm, I'm doing the things that I feel like God called me to do, but these, the life that I live and the world that I live in doesn't seem to correlate with the promise that God gave me and gave my people centuries ago. And so there's this really important reality with that last section where you look at the, the, the reality of their heartbrokenness, uh, of, their, of their, their weariness, right, of, of, their, of their frustration, and you can feel that sense that there is a sort of anger and a sort of frustration. And so when you have John saying words like, I'm preparing the way of the Lord. It's not just saying I'm preparing a way so that, so that people can come to know Jesus and turn away from their sins. It's filled with this angst. It's filled with this passion that says, I'm preparing the way for our people to receive what we've always wanted. What we haven't had for hundreds of years. It's something so much more than what, what like, like we bring, if I'm being honest, there's so much, so much heart behind what's being brought to the table here by John the Baptist than what we do when we go out and say, hey, like, do you know Jesus? Because he's, he sees his role as preparing the way for one who's not just going to impact his life or the people's life spiritually, but one that's going to restore the fullness of, of who they are as a people. So he's bringing what I would describe as societal hopes, right? Like social societal needs. I think there's a, a slide that says that on there, Lord. Right? He's bringing the sort of societal hope 
This idea that through this Jesus, something in my society, in my world is going to change. Something in, in my world is going to, to turn over. And, and the hopes that I have for my people, the hopes that I have for, for those around me, right, are going to be met by this Savior, by this Messiah. Friends, this is important and this is powerful. Um, the thing is, I, I think a lot of us can't really relate to this, though. And this is hard to grasp, if I'm being honest, for us as Americans, to be frank. We know what it's like to observe injustice, but we don't really know what it's like to not have any form of retaliation, right? We see injustices happening through the world, and, and then we see a response where people say, hey, I, I, don't, I don't appreciate that. And then they fight back in protests and in, in everything that happens when people feel like there's injustice in the world, and then they respond by going, I don't, I don't think that's okay. Uh, and that's why it's so unique, you know, in, in like right now, there's a lot of really powerful things happening in Iran. And there's a lot of powerful things happening there when it comes to women and the treatment of women and how they've been, been treated for, for several decades, uh, for man, hundreds of years. I don't really know the history. I just know the, the kind of up, upmost history now. And we see people even there where, where there's not as much freedom as here to respond to injustice, rising up and saying, no, this isn't okay. And so we live in a world where that's the expectation the world, Paul, the world Jesus and John lived in, that is not the expectation, right? Any sort of rebellion is met with a hard hand, and, and you're kept in line by force. And so everything that comes up, every injustice is something you have to sit with and you have to swallow. And so we don't really know this type of, of oppression. We don't know this type of injustice. And so we can't relate with John when he sits there and goes, someone's coming, and I'm preparing the way for him, and he's going to make everything okay for us because they don't feel like they have any other option. It's also kind of difficult, if I'm being honest, to connect with how passionate John probably is for his people. Uh, I thought about this the other day, me and my dad were talking about it, where like, who all has like watched any of the World Cup? Okay, <laughs> like six of us. All right, so uh, the World Cup is incredible. Y'all already know I'm kind of like obsessed with uh, soccer, and so I was gonna watch like every game. I tried to get up for them 4.30 games, not happening. Uh, but everyone besides the 4.30 games I was in. And I, my dad's been getting really into this as well. You know, he, he hasn't historically been, but he was getting into it recently, and he would text me all the time and be like, these people are so passionate about this. Like, the people in the stands are, like, crying when their team wins or crying when their team loses. And he was like, and he sent me a text, and he was like, what can we relate this to in our society, like in our culture? I feel like nothing really has this same weight. And he said maybe, uh, I forgot how, what he said. And then I said, it, it might be close to, like, seeing your child win the Super Bowl or lose the Super Bowl. Because it's bigger than, it's the biggest sporting event in the world. Like the Super Bowl doesn't hold a candlestick to the World Cup in terms of the amount of viewers that come to it, the amount of people that are involved in it. And because we're not passionate about this sport, but the rest of the world is, this is kind of one of the main ways people have a sense of pride in where they come from, especially in spaces where there's been some form of, uh, you know, colonization, and then they're going up against the people that have history of colonizers, and, and they're beating them, and then there's like this crazy response, and like, there's this sense of pride that goes in with it that we can't possibly understand. Because we don't even like, I mean like, America only plays sports that we're good at, right? Like, America only plays sports that we know, like, we're the only one that plays this thing. Like, football, where you throw around, like, not like, like soccer football, but like the oval football, no one else in the world plays this, right? Just maybe Canada, but they're so-so at it, you know? And so, all of a sudden, like, well, this is our main focus, but it's also, we're the only ones that play it. So we don't have to compete with anybody. The rest of the world's playing this game, attaching some form of identity to it, and they feel a sense of liberation, they feel a sense of vindication, they feel a sense of, of, of uplifting when they see that ball go into the back of that net and they're in the, they're in the, the, the stands and they're crying and weeping because they're associating this is mine and I'm theirs. They represent me and they're succeeding. That, that sort of connection, right, is I think a, 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 a small example of what John is bringing to the table when he's communicating like this. That I'm, I'm y'all's and y'all are mine. They're not us but they're over us, but I'm preparing a way for one that's gonna make us whole again, that's gonna bring life to us, that's going to restore us. I could picture him weeping when he's saying this, not because he's like, y'all aren't spiritual enough and y'all need to get more spiritual, but I'm preparing the way for one that's gonna restore us as a people, and it's powerful. And the thing is, he's not the first one that's doing this. There have been plenty of people in his day that are doing this. Two specific groups that we think about most often in the Bible uh, are the Pharisees and the Herodians, right? These are two opposite ends of the spectrum for Jesus' day. 
right? The, the Pharisees were pro-independence. They did not want to be uh, under Roman control. Uh, they were pro for uh, Israel um, having independence, being their own country. Uh, they were non-political. They did not participate in the, the political structure of the day at all. They were like, that's not our business. We're here to preach, and we're here to see people be spiritually vitalized. And that was rooted in the fact that they were hyper-religious. They were observing every law, memorizing tons of, of their Bible, and, and all of a sudden, these were just like kind of the spiritual arm of the day. On the other side were a group called the Herodians. And the Herodians were, were not pro-independence. Uh, in fact, they had uh, kind of cuddled up next to Herod, the, the Roman governor, uh, therefore the name Herodians. <laughs> uh, so uh, they, they, had, they had nestled up next to Herod for favor, and they saw nestling up next to the Romans as the best way to preserve and to, and to protect their people. They were a political group. They did not necessarily engage in spiritual life, but they were a group that was... Uh, politically active, and they were less religious. Now, you might be there thinking, where's the, where's the Sadducees in this? They're kind of like right here, to be honest. Like, they're, they're, these are ends of a spectrum uh, where the Herodians are on the far end of a spectrum and the Pharisees are on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, and the Sadducees were probably like right here, where they, they are religious in some ways. They have theological uh, differences with the Pharisees, but they do kind of nestle up next to the Romans in some ways. But, but these are like ends of a spectrum that are wild. Because in one way, the Pharisees see the world they're in and they think, I know what to do. We need to be independent. We, the political system is not how we get where we need to go. We need to invite people back to God and believing the right things and, and oh, doing the right things. And if you don't do these things and you're not aligned with us, then you're not in the right group and you're preventing us from being where we should be. You're preventing us from being independent. You're preventing us from being uh, where God wants us to be. And then on the other side, right, the Herodians go, I know what we need to do. I know what we need to do. We need to nestle up next to King Herod because if we don't, they're going to squash us. And then we need to be political because in this new world, this new Roman world, this Roman Republic, being political is the main way we actually can make an impact. Not just by being grassroots, but we need to enter into the political sphere and to support Herod. And we need to not necessarily impose our religion onto everything because realistically, like our religion is not what rules the Roman world. Politics and influence rules the, the Roman world. That's what we need to be a part of. Two completely different views that are on opposite ends of the spectrum, both of them looking and going, that's what we need to do to make our world what it needs to be. And so here's the thing, friend. I think that we can actually relate to the societal hopes that John the Baptist brings to the table because if you're being honest and I'm being honest, we think the same way. We have these same approaches. You look at the world and I look at the world and we go, there's something wrong. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There's certain types of pain. And yes, we can't relate to an ethnic group being marginalized and, and we can't relate to like a country ruling over us that is not ours. We're all citizens. If we're born here, we can become citizens, right? Like, like we, we don't know what it means to be oppressed like this, but we do know what it means to look out at the world and go, there's something wrong. We should do something about it. And figuring out a group and going, well, this must be the best way to handle it. And then aligning ourselves with that group and going, this is what I am. This is what I am, and this is how we can make a difference. Friends, the societal hopes that we bring to the table are different than John's, but we bring them to the table, right? Replace this with Democrats and Republicans, and all of a sudden you have, a, I mean, almost a pretty good, like, duplication of what our world actually looks like right now. Right, that, that we would look and go, oh man, well we, we're in favor of like a smaller government uh, and, and we wanna be, you know, like, like kind of smaller government. We wanna like put Christ and Christianity in schools and X, Y, and Z. And then the other side is like less religious, but they're like, hey, can we have like a, a bigger government that's like more in control of things? And, and this is what's going on in their worlds. And be fair, it's what's going on in our world. We bring societal hopes to, to the table and then we go out and we try to figure out what can we do in order to make the world look like what we want it to look like, what we hope it looks like, what we dream it looks like. And we go out and we try to figure out ways to do it, just like the Pharisees, just like the Herodians. And in a lot of ways, that's what John is bringing to the table as well. He's saying, make way, right? Make straight the way of the Lord. Because we want to see who we are socially as a society, right? We want to see it built up. We want to see it restored. We want to see something beautiful come of it. Here's the thing. These are powerful words and a powerful moment for John. But I kind of like a story about John the Baptist in Luke 7 that brings about not just societal hopes, but moves a little closer and brings about what I would describe as some personal hope. Because John is preaching all of these messages, and he's talking about this coming Messiah, and, and he has this very 
revolutionary type of language and, and, and posture to him, he gets arrested. He gets arrested and he gets put in jail. I guess those two things mean the same thing. But that's where he is. And he's in danger. And in Luke 7, there's this incredible moment where we see John hearing about the ministry of Jesus in jail. And this is what happens. In Luke 7, 18, then John's disciples told him about all these things, these things related to what Jesus is doing in his ministry. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You go to the next one. Uh, when the men reached him, Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? This is beautiful because this takes John from his nationalistic, full of patriotism moment, speaking to the whole and speaking to everyone and saying, hey, get ready because someone's gonna come and make us whole into this very personal moment where he's in jail, he's probably hungry, he's probably thirsty, he has very personal needs. And when he hears of everything Jesus is doing, he has a very powerful question. Are you the one? Are you the one? And he's bringing all of his societal hopes to the table. He's bringing all of the social hopes to the table. Are you the one that's gonna come and restore us? Are you the one that's gonna come and actually make everything right? Are you the one that's gonna come and bring us freedom? But in this moment, he's also bringing a lot of personal hopes. Are you the one that's gonna free me? Are you the one that's gonna make everything right and free the prisoners who are being unrightly detained, including myself? Are you gonna be the one that feeds people? Because I'm probably hungry. Are you gonna be the one that actually gives people what to thirst? That's my son, y'all, please, sorry. I'm gonna block him out, right? Um, right, and then you have, are you gonna bring the one that actually brings, brings the, water, the, the, the water of life? The, because I'm actually thirsty. And, and he's bringing not just, not just societal hopes to the table, I want the world to look this way. I feel the weight of injustice and I want it to be redeemed, but he's bringing personal hopes. Are you gonna be the one that brings me out of the darkness that I'm in? Friends, there's some of us in here that, that we look at the social world around us and, and we're passionate about things of justice. And that's beautiful. Look at me. I want you to know I'm proud of you for that. I, I believe that the, the, the Christian response to injustice should be systemic and holistic. I mean, our vision is the idea of, of a resource center that meets a lot of systemic and holistic needs to bring about uh, redemption and restoration in a community that desperately needs it in the one that we serve in here. However, there's also a group of us that, that we don't look around the world and find the, the injustices that are around us, because if I'm being honest, we're drowning in our own darkness and, and our own pain right now. We, we have a weight that goes, man, I see all the demonstrations and I see the Twitter posts and I see all these things, but if I'm being honest, my life is hard enough as it is. I can't preoccupy myself with everything going, everything going on in Iran or, or X, Y, and Z community here, because if I'm being honest, I'm trying to get over the hump of my own need, my own pain, my own darkness. And if I'm being honest, in a moment where, where, where John is in jail, he doesn't know necessarily what the end result of him and his life is going to be. He has all of the nationalistic, all of the social hopes piled up onto him, but in a moment where he's not necessarily able, no, we're not going there quite yet, um, where he's not necessarily ready or, or not focusing on those things, uh, he, he is likewise bringing to the table now some personal hopes about his own position, where he is, his own darkness, right? Friends, if I'm being honest, there's some of us in here that relate to that more than we relate to prepare the way. Because if I'm being honest and you're being honest, the, the, the deepest and most important things on your mind are not all the affairs and injustices that are going on around the world, but, but all of the realities that you wrestle through every day. And maybe it's your own mental health. Maybe it's the relationships that you find yourself in. Maybe it is uh, the struggles that you have at work. Maybe it's struggling to pay bills. Maybe uh, no matter what it is, you're, those are the things you bring to the Lord when you bring them. And when you ask God to intercede in the world, you're not thinking about how he intercedes in Iran. You're thinking about how he intercedes in your life. And you're bringing all those to him in the night. And maybe you stay awake. Maybe you wake up in the middle of the night. And your first thought is not, God, intercede for the injustices all around me. It's God, help me in the midst of my darkness. And in that moment, I think John is bringing that to the table as well. Yeah, there's a lot of social issues, but I'm in jail, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm probably beaten. Are you the one that's coming to help us? But are you the one that's coming to help me? Because we need help, but I need help. I 
It's a powerful question. Are you the one? Are you the one? And this is, this is God's response. Now let's go to that one, right? Now, God's response is Jesus' response. Um, in, I believe it's Luke 7 continues on um, in verse 21, 20, uh, 21. At that time, this isn't directly after he's asked this question. Uh, at that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits. And he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. That's Jesus' response. Are you the one? Are you the one? Jesus, in essence, says, go tell him what you saw. Go tell him what you saw. And this response does two things. It does two things. I think the first thing it does is that it affirms his messiahship. I don't know if that's the word, but y'all just roll with me. Messiahship, right? It affirms Jesus as Messiah. Why? Because this is a reference to a prophecy in Isaiah where these exact words are said of the one who's going to come and make things right and restore things. And so what, what Jesus is doing is in a coy way, recognizing there's a bunch of people around him that are ready to kill him. Basically, at any point, he looks at John the Baptist's disciples and says, go tell him to quote this verse and let him know I am the one. I am the one. But in the midst of that, we put that back up, Lord. But in the midst of that, he also displays something that's very powerful. He displays God's heart. Because while John is asking, are you the one that's going to come and, and, and provide the revolution we need to become who we are? And while John is asking, are you the one that's going to open the jail cell and release all the prisoners because you're bringing freedom for all and the restoration of everything? Jesus looks at him and says, blind people are seen. Hurting people are healed. Lame people are walking. Tell them that, tell them that, that every, every affliction that I see, I bring redemption to. Every, every hurt that I see, I'm present and I bring healing to. Right? Every, everything that's ever caused the pain and anguish of the human heart, when it runs into me, it meets its match and it's overcome by me. And all of a sudden, the message back to John is not, yeah, just buckle in and wait. The message back to John is Jesus saying, I'm here. And because of that, everything's going to be okay. John in that jail cell doesn't know whether he's going to get out or not. The reality is he doesn't. And I could picture him in that jail cell thinking to himself, I don't know what my end is. I don't know where my people are going to be in the next several years. I don't know how some sort of revolution might start off. I don't know exactly where we're going. I don't know what's going to happen. But I can't but feel comforted because he's here, and because his work is something that I didn't expect. I expected a revolution, and I got compassion, right? I, I, I expected a, an upheaval, and actually got a lot of mercy. I expected the door to fling open, and instead of releasing me from the prison, this Messiah entered into the prison with me to comfort me and to be present with me. I don't know exactly what's going to happen here, but I know it's all going to be okay because he's here and because he loves us and because he's here working in the midst of our lives. Right? That's the, that's the, the hope that comes to John in the midst of Jesus' response. Friend, that's the hope that comes to us when we bring our personal hopes and our societal hopes to the Messiah. Here's the thing. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know exactly where your deepest struggles lead, friend. I don't. In this life, I don't know exactly how they end up. I don't know 
when the end of injustice in the world is going to come. I, I, don't, I don't know when it's going to pop off. I don't know when, I don't know if it ever will, to be frank with you, because the evil in the world is produced out of a human heart that, that seems to never really be satisfied with anything. I don't know exactly what is, is happening all the time. What I do know, though, is that he's here with us. Is that the one who promised to come, the one who said, I will crush evil and I'll overcome it, the one who was promised to come down and to enter into our story in order to redeem us and to rescue us and to bring us out of darkness has come. And he's saying, tell them what you saw. Blind receive sight, lame walk, right? Hurting people are, are being healed. That, that's what he tells that's what he tells John, right, to bring comfort to his heart. And friend, I think that's what he tells us to bring comfort to ours. The reality is I don't know when Jesus is coming back, and therefore I don't know when injustice is going to be over. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, and therefore I don't know when pain is going to be gone and, and eradicated forever. What we do know is that when we ask the question, are you him, Jesus says, I am, and take a look at what I'm doing. Look around and take a look at what I'm doing. Right? I, I, I want to bring healing, I want to bring redemption, I want to bring courage, I want to bring mercy. Look around and look at what I'm doing, right? I, I, I don't know exactly when, <laughs> sorry y'all, uh, I, I don't know exactly when that comeback happens. I don't know exactly what it's gonna look like. People have, have pontificated and, and had several theories about what the return of Jesus is gonna look like. They, they look at it literally in the Bible and they're like, he's gonna come on a cloud and he's gonna part and you're gonna hear a loud trumpet. And that's like, I hope that'll happen at like three in the morning because I'm gonna be dead asleep. But, right, I, they have all these different theories of what's gonna happen. I don't know if that's what it's gonna look like. I don't know if it's gonna be spiritual. I don't know if there's gonna be a rapture. I don't know if there's gonna not be. I don't know exactly how these things are gonna happen. But I know that when I ask, are you the one? Are you the one? The response is, look at what I do. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done in your life, in the life of others. Look at what I've done in the world. Think about how I work. Think about my heart. Think about the depths of what it means for me to love you and, and the fruit that comes from me loving you and find courage in that. I don't know exactly what happened to John's heart at that moment. I don't know exactly if John felt like there was nothing to ever worry about again or if he felt very anxious about what was coming. I know that the, the reality was never going to be, John, here's information so that you can feel better, but rather, John, here's information to know that I'm going to overcome it. That's the story of the weary world, right? That while the weary world is asking, what can we do? Are you the one? What's coming? How can I help? While all of that is happening, Jesus enters into the story and just starts working. And here's the thing, friend, in your life, you may be asking a lot of questions about exactly where you are and how things are gonna go. And again, I don't know the answer to those things. I think there's a lot of really beautiful things that we can tap into, uh, things like counseling, um, help and programs, what we're trying to do as a church and helping the community in our long-term vision. However, what we're, what we're invited into is not always, here's the step-by-step -step process in how to get you out of jail. What we're oftentimes encouraged to look at is, is look at the fruit of my hand, look at the work of my life. This is testimony that I love you. And ultimately it climaxes, not just in this act of, of healing people, but in bringing the ultimate healing as Jesus goes to the cross. And instead of, instead of healing moments of darkness, he allows the fullness of darkness to come on him. And as he allows the fullness of darkness to come on him, he, he, he overcomes darkness through his own death. He overcomes darkness through his own sacrificial work of love. And in his resurrection, we're invited to find life and find hope and say, that's the ultimate end of the story. Right, because he's been with me in the depths of my darkness, in his resurrection, he now invites me to be with him in the heights of his hope. And so now, while I know that darkness may be my moment now, it is not the seal of my moment forever. Not because uh, there's just gonna be, things are gonna get better. Not because I just gonna toss up some, some pithy thought of like, oh, things will get better and get a pat on the back. But because the Messiah entered into the darkness and the darkness fleed. Because when the Messiah entered in and, 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 and sickness fled and heartbreak fled, and, and disunity fled, right? When the Messiah entered into the picture and then he gave his life and resurrected, he guaranteed, I have overcome and you no longer have to be in despair. Have hope, have hope not just in the story, have hope in me. That's the story of the Messiah. That's what's happening there, 
right? That Jesus sees the depths of the world. He sees and hears the crying. He sees it not just for 400 years, but for thousands of years since the beginning of the story. And he says, I'll enter into the darkness with you so that when I enter into my light, you'll be invited there as well. Friend, what that means is not that all oh, things will eventually get better. Like at the end of my life, I'll see that everything got better. It means that if sorrow tries to conquer the fullness of your life up until the last breath, because of the work of the Messiah, the last breath that you give may be filled with despair and it'll be conquered up by the great and conquering king who's overcome darkness and in a moment where the last breath was filled with despair, in his hands the last breath is turned into a victorious roar. That's what it means. That's what it means. John the Baptist, he wasn't gonna get out of jail. In fact, he was gonna get his head chopped off. And in his final breaths, I'm sure in his final sights, whatever that may have looked like, the assurance that Jesus' words gave him is the next breath is victory. The next breath is victory. Not because everything went better. Not because everything got okay. But because I've conquered the darkness. The weary world can now rejoice because weariness is not the end of the story. Jesus is, right? That's, that's the announcement that comes when John says, there's one coming. I'm making the path straight. And then ultimately the answer he receives when he asks, are you the one? Are you the one that's going to bring redemption to the weary souls, hurting minds, and discouraged hearts all around? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. It may not look the way you want it. It may not be the revolution and the overthrowing of Rome, but the blind see, and the sick are healed, and the lame walk. The discouraged are given strength. Tell them that. Friends, today the invitation that we have from the Messiah is to tap into that heart. To tap into that heart. To tap into the affection that God has for us. Here's the thing. I know society can suck sometimes. I know that there are injustices in the world. I know that there are things we look out at and think to, my, think to ourselves like, God, could this get like any worse? And our responses are good. Let me tell you one thing. For those of you that are passionate about that, man, I want to say I'm proud of you. Like, I think the Christian response, I said this a second ago, should be systemic and holistic. It should be. It should be systemic and holistic. When you think about, like, I think in Acts 6, when all of the, like, the, the, the Greek widows are like, hey, we ain't getting fed, right? The disciples are like, hey, that ain't my problem, or we're feeding you spiritually, right? That, they literally sat back and thought, hey, get, get guys together, right? And then send them out and make sure that it gets fixed. They set up a new system that fed everyone that made sure everyone was cared for. That's in Acts 6. So the Christian response to injustices should not just be being like, oh, no, no, we, that's a, just, just a spiritual concern. We, that's not our problem. We're just preaching Jesus. Rather, it is a holistic response to make sure justice is had for all and to bring dignity and, and equality to everyone. However, right, if, if our effort is to do that without understanding, knowing the heart of God, then we start to look like Pharisees and Sadducees, Pharisees and, and Herodians. Right, we start to look like people that hold uh, our religious works over them, throwing them into shame. We start to look like people that abandon God in effort to think that, that oh, like, like there's something greater out there and another means by which we can bring hope. In our own lives, right, if, if we look at the darkness of our lives and we think, okay, like, like I, and we don't know the depths of God's heart, we start to do things the way we want to do things and the way we think we should go, the things that we think would be best. The whole Bible is littered with people up until this moment that are doing that over and over and over again. There's a line from the book of Kings, that, from the book of Judges, it literally says they did what was right in their own eyes. And the point of the line is that it keeps bringing destruction over and over again. If we don't understand the depths of God's love, we'll proceed and go, oh, I have the answer to society, but it'll be void of what God wants to do. I have the answer for my life, but it'll be void of what God actually has for me. And I'll be thinking of all the ways to help without thinking of the one who's trying to actually bring healing. And that's why the line of being able to look back and go, show him what you see is so powerful. Because it doesn't, it doesn't just affirm what, what John wants to know. It affirms and displays to him the heart of God at work in the world and how that is working in, in people's lives and bringing redemption and bringing healing. And John is invited now to look at the rest of his life and to gauge it not just on what he thinks is good, not just on his own expectations, but rather to think, what would God want in this moment? How would he respond to the person in front of me? How would he respond to the one who has religious 
belief differences with him? Would he be like a Pharisee and say, oh, man, I should stone you? Or would he be like Jesus who consistently seems to be compassionate toward people? How, would, how, would, how should John react now when, when he sees someone that's sinful, not even religious, but, but irreligious? And, and should he be like, oh, man, you're the type of person that is keeping us from being who we want to be and where we should be? Or will he be like Jesus consistently seems to look down on, on a woman who's been caught in an affair and extend compassion and love? Right? The invitation to John is not just to see the world as it's going to be remade by Jesus, just, not just to have an answer, but to see the solution, right? to see the depths of God's love. That's going to be the solution. That's going to be the, the piercing light that enters into darkness and overcomes the darkness. It's going to be that love. That's the idea that's here, okay? That's the idea that's here. So how do we, how do we grow in seeing God's heart? Right, how do we do that? I'm going to finish up here because I think this is generally where we're ending. We're seeing God's heart in his works, and we're seeing God's heart in the crucifixion. We're seeing in his resurrection this invitation of victory. Right? How do we do this? Well, one, I want to encourage you, see it in Scripture. Right? Don't believe everything you hear. Uh, go to the source. Why can't you believe everything you hear? Because I've heard people tell others that, that bad things are happening in their lives because God uh, is angry at them. And because God is angry at them, uh, he's inviting these bad things in and bringing it about to punish them for not doing the right thing, not believing the right thing. Uh, and if I'm being honest, friend, I'm, it has made my blood boil the amount of times I've heard that statement come across. Uh, it's really angered me. And I think that the best way to confront the idea is to look at the scriptures to see God's love in the New Testament, to see him look on compassion with sinful people and to say that is exactly who God is. Not what someone tells me, not the conjecture of a person that wants me to be a certain way and I'm not being, but, but to actually go to the source and to see, it, to see God's heart uh, up close and personal in the scriptures. But don't just see it in scripture. Here's the thing, don't just see it in scripture, right? If all you do is read and you don't ever live any of that out, none of it's going to be real to you. If all you do is read and you never live any of it out, none of it's going to be real to you. Absolutely none of it. You will have zero context for what it means to love someone. You will have zero context for what it means to sacrifice for someone. And therefore, when you look at the words of Scripture where Jesus is consistently laying down his life for others uh, out of love, it will not make sense to you because you've never done it yourself. So don't just see it in Scripture. Live it out. Last, oh, I sorry, yesterday. Quick, quick story before we finish up. Uh, we were supposed to go out and do door hangers yesterday. A group of us met up at City School to do that. Um, what was that? Okay, yes. Yes, that, 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 that vocal expression is, is, yes, that's how I felt about it. I was excited. I think that was excitement. It could have been a groan too, I'm not sure. But what I'm getting at is that I got a message from Michael Salazar that morning, and he just said, hey, uh, there's not really any room to park at City School because they're giving out groceries. They give out groceries every week that we've been there. There's usually always space to park. Uh, Mark texts me and says, hey, there is a lot of cars here. If you know, can you let people know to go around back? Uh, I get there, and there is a massive line at City School to get groceries. This is unlike anything I've seen so far. And we're there quite often. And we've parked there quite often. And there are cars, but there aren't that many cars. There was, like, one line came out. It went to two lines. Those two lines almost went to the street. It was massive. So I went in there and started kind of trying to navigate my way through this absolute chaos. And I, I get to the front of the line. I'm, I'm not cutting. but I'm just going to the back to try and park. Uh, and I think to myself for a split second, I wonder if this is what we're supposed to be doing today and not these flyers. And it's like within 30 seconds of me thinking that, I look to my left and I see Mark, Jermaine, Michael, Lex. I see people just pushing carts up there and bringing food to these people. And I get to the back and I park and I get out of the car and I see that the only person out there to give food out is uh, an older lady named Liz and her nephew, who's like the standard like 15-year-old kid, right? He's kind of just like, <laughs> like lines of people waiting for food, and he's totally just like, you know, and no, 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 no shade to him. He's, he seems like a great kid. He was out there trying, but he was just quintessentially like 15, you know? Um, and we just started grabbing stuff and putting stuff out there, and we just started, just started helping. And for a split second, I grabbed a bag and I pulled it off, and I thought about how Jesus would have felt when he looked and saw people eating the fruit of his hands when he multiplied food to feed people. And it just crossed my mind for a second. 
I didn't think to myself, like, I'm Jesus. I didn't think nothing like that. But, but it just crossed my mind what, it, what it's like to feed hungry people. And I just had a split second where I was like, thank you. Live it. Don't just see it in scripture. Go live it. Because it puts in different contexts the words of what's happening. And then weep with those who weep, but rejoice with those who rejoice. Right? Be present to care for those who need it, but also be encouraged by the testimony of others. I think that it, it, it sometimes the Christian life can be this idea where it's just sacrificial and it's just repentance and it's just weeping. The thing is, there's a lot to rejoice about. There's a lot to be happy about. There's a lot to be encouraged by. And so be present for those that need encouragement. Be present. I think that's such an incredibly valuable asset to be present for people. Be present to love them, to care for them, to hear their needs, to be a shoulder that you, they can rest on and find rest in. But at the same time, Right? Be encouraged by the testimonies of people that are seeing God work in their lives in these really encouraging and, and profound ways. When you hear someone be like, man, God is good, be, go ahead and say amen, right? Or, or, say, or be like, yeah, you know, I'm churchy, so I'm going to say amen, but you do what you do, right? Like, like take time to hear the encouragement, the encouraging words and stories of others and, and find, find joy in them, right? Weep with those who weep, but rejoice with those who rejoice. I think there is a really powerful testimony in Jesus looking around and seeing people weeping tears of joy and hearing a discouraged man come and ask the question, are you the one, and him going, look there. I think that's a powerful testimony of how our heart receives encouragement. I think it's powerful. And so weep with those who weep, but man, take heart with those who are rejoicing. Uh, as we press into to understanding God's heart and we start to think about how we want to respond to the realities of the world, the realities of our lives, it's just important and, and I think critical to really look and be like, help me understand how you want to serve and love people. Help me understand how you want to be compassionate and work that through me, Father. Work that through me. Or aid my heart and comfort me with it. Um, yeah, that's the courage, encouragement we get through that pronouncement, that announcement of the one is here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word of God that invites us into hearing this great pronouncement that the one who was promised is the one who is here. Thank you for helping us see your work. Thank you for helping us see the work of your hand, the depths of your love. Thank you for helping us see how much you care for us and see how much you see in us and, and what you want to do in our lives. And Father, it is, it is at times very challenging uh, to look out into the world and to see the condition of it. It is sometimes very hard to look at our lives and to actually live them. Uh, and, and yet, your servant John, who's going through really similar, if not worse things, um, poses such a beautiful question to you. And if you are the one who's going to bring redemption and your overwhelming answer is yes. So help us uh, understand the depths of what it means for you to love us um, help us understand what it means for you to love the world. Uh, let us respond to the difficulties in our lives, uh, clinging to your love. Let us respond to the difficulties of others' lives, pointing them to the depths of your love. And yeah, that may look like correction at times. It may look like encouragement toward the right thing. There's the wrong thing happening. But even in that, let us look at the life of Jesus who so oftentimes resists the urge to be anything but gentle and kind. There are moments, but, but the mass, vast majority is your gentleness and the kindness of your love. And help us respond to the world like that. Help us respond to ourselves like that. And help us always cling to your heart that beats for us in an incredible way that goes for sure beyond what most of us can fathom. Yet is exactly what you invite us into. So I love you. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.